Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously... Then we are The Natural Selection. On today's show... Science has been wondering this for far too long and we're here to answer that question. <laughs> I, was, I think the invertebrates don't have much going for them. Which makes it an offence punishable by 60 days in prison should anyone kill, injure, capture, maim, cause harm, distress or annoy the tortoise. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Jack. Ronnie. Have you heard about the mutiny on the bounty? (laughs) No. Okay. I haven't heard about the mutiny on the bounty. Thank God. (laughs) There's a lot to go through on the mutiny of the bounty. Okay. And I'm going to be honest with you. It's only like a hundred years after the mutiny on the bounty <laughs> that it actually becomes a how many geese thing. Right, okay. But we're starting with the mutiny on the bounty. Okay. Because there's some geography which needs to be played out. And frankly, if we were ever to expand our horizons uh, beyond, you know, nature, yeah. the, the mutiny on the bounty, I feel, is history made goose. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> the year is 1787. Mm-hmm. And the HMS bounty is setting sail from England on a mission to collect and transport breadfruit plants from Tahiti to the Caribbean, as at the time they were thought they would make a cheap food for the slaves there. That's nice of them. Yeah, yeah, very, very kind of them, exactly. To prepare for its mission to transport the fruit, the bounty was essentially retrofitted to turn the great cabin, which would have originally been given over to the captain and it was converted into an onboard greenhouse for the transport of over a thousand potted plants oh wow and this space being put aside meant that conditions were incredibly cramped for the crew who had to endure the crossing so there was severe overcrowding when they originally would have been spread out they were packed in somewhere to make room for a thousand pot plants okay it had a crew total of 46 44 from the Royal Navy and two botanists to join them. Mm. And some of this crew were in windowless, unventilated areas with a headroom of just five foot seven. Those 44 Royal Navy crew are hating those two botanists. And the captain of this ship was Lieutenant William Bly. Now, the route charted to get them to Tahiti and then deliver to the Caribbean, was to basically circumnavigate the world, going under South America up to Tahiti to get the breadfruit, and then carrying on west to go under India, under Africa, and across the Atlantic to drop them off at the Caribbean. Okay. Um, But the journey was incredibly hard. So they set off, they're off at sea, and incredibly hard. And at times on the journey south, around South America, uh, they'd hit a period of stormy weather and be battling the winds, And Bly, the captain, would relentlessly push the men to plough on and get the boat going, only for the winds to win, and in the space of 24 hours, the boat being pushed further north than it was a week ago. Right, okay. So they're not making any ground whatsoever, they're making negative ground. Negative, negative sea (laughs) is being claimed. By the 26th of October, 1788... So we are a year later, the ship reached Tahiti. Relations at this point were really deteriorating between Bly and his crew. So they'd spent a year on the boat. I They possibly stopped, you know, going on <laughs> yeah. the coast to re... But the journey took the, a year. The journey to get them from London to 
Tahiti. Yes, Tahiti was basically a year. 26th of October, 1788. And after a year of this incredibly hard voyage, they settled down for a five-month break in Tahiti Mm -hmm. to find the plants, get them ready, and all the rest. Now, the crew of the Bounty, I should say, by this point had lost some members. The ship's surgeon was a total drunk. Uh, He spent most of his time absolutely hammered and... He'd he'd killed a few people. <laughs> really? Yeah. What? Yeah, he just. Oh my god! Well, in the in the ancient, was was not the ancient cure or whatever, but the method he employed was bloodletting. Oh, uh, okay. But he was leathered, right? And they didn't need it. Just let out too much. So he just yeah, exactly. So, but of the crew that uh, left and the crew that originally set off, they were all relatively young. Bly was 33, most of the crew were under 30, and on landing on the island, so began a period of, and these are quotes from Bly himself, promiscuity among the native women, and Bly tolerated this as he was unsurprised they should succumb to temptation when the allurements of dissipation are beyond anything that can be conceived. Right. So, a year at sea, very hard, they've basically landed and they're on a essentially a gap year of five months yeah despite being though on this kind of sex fueled tropical sabbatical from the voyage Bly continued to be very hard on the crew like I said he was driving them forward when they were getting pushed further north and he began to increase punishments with floggings becoming ever more common among the men oh my god three men tried to escape at this point because they'd had enough of him over the last year only to be caught a couple weeks later and flogged on their return ugh and Bly drove up the pace of work to increase and get the thousand pot plants ready to go back with them. And on the 6th of April, 1789, five months after landing and their five months of hedonism on the island, the bounty was ready to begin heading home. Now, at this point, I'm going to introduce us to Fletcher Christian. Okay. Christian was 23 years old when the ship first set sailed, and he had served with Bly on two previous voyages and they had developed a sort of master and pupil relationship. He was a very skilled navigator and despite not technically being second in command when they left, Bly soon formalised the position, bumped him up and promoted him. Mm -hmm. However, throughout the voyage and their time in Tahiti, Bly began to dole out ever harsher punishments and Christian was frequently found at the the butt of these and then being directed his way and despite his earlier favoured status the captain often mocked him in front of the crew so by the 27th of april having spent five months you know yes there were floggings yeah but there'd also been sort of sex-fueled binges on a tropical island yeah five months there 27th of april three weeks back out at sea Bly sent christian on some doomed missions to other polynesian islands as they were going past to collect provisions and christian was not being provided with uh, like this is obviously a different era not being provided with arms to fight the natives right. to get the you know and all the rest so he was coming back empty-handed basically but from kind of his point of view wasn't getting the support from his manager yeah <laughs> <laughs> and christian and he was getting further humiliated by Bly, further floggings. And Christian was at breaking point um, and in a state of absolute despair and brooding. It kind of snapped when Bly accused him of stealing coconuts from his private room because despite them giving over the captain's quarters and all being cramped somewhere, Bly still got a private room and private dining room. Yeah. Bly accused him of stealing coconuts from his room and he punished the entire crew. The punishment for this 
being stopping their rum ration and reducing food by half. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the rum ration, he should have got on top of that at the start. Given the surgeon. Yeah, off. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. Given the surgeon is yeah, drunkenly bleeding everybody. Yeah. But yeah, half the food. Yeah. But like, in a real sense of like trying to put myself in their shoes, can you imagine just, and <laughs> cast aside any other, but five months on a tropical island, women did yeah. do, and then you're back at sea and your boss cuts all your food by half and is flogging you. Okay. Yeah. Everyone was sick of it. Yeah. Yeah. Or Christian, certainly. So Christian was thinking about abandoning ship, but we know that two of the younger officers urged him not to desert, saying the crew were ripe for anything. Mm. So on the morning of the 28th of April, 1789, mutiny. Oh, man. Christian rallied the names of those who were discontent, seized control of the ship's arms, made for Bly's cabin and tied his hands. With the mutiny growing and more people waking up and realising, this is like 5am the reports are saying, there were still some who were loyal to Bly and they were trying to, you know, we cannot do this and it was either through their allegiance to him or, you know, 1700s duty to the job, what a gentleman should do. You know, mutiny, of course, very, you know, pirates and everything. You don't want to be thrown in with that. And I love this description of the scene uh, being recorded as people were waking up that morning to to witness it all. Everyone was... Uh, <clears throat> Victorian voice. Of course. Everyone was, more or less, making a noise, either cursing, <laughs> jeering, or just shouting for the reassurance it gave them something to do. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've been in that meeting. <laughs> <laughs> Christian slightly miscalculated the enthusiasm for his mutiny. Oh, that's not a great. And by the end, it basically came down to 50-50. He ordered Bly and his 23 loyalists to be cast off in the ship's boat, and they were put to sea, set on their way. At this point now, Christian has taken control of the bounty. So have they gone? They're gone? They've gone. And... I'll just address it now. We're not going to come back to much of them for this. Okay. But they do... I think it took Bly two or so years to make it back. To England? To Eng- He did it. Whoa. Yeah. I thought that was it. I thought they were gone. No, 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 no. They put to sea. And the, the boat they were in... So basically Christian thought it was going to be a huge mutiny. So he'd only have to put Bly in a boat and then there were more people so he was like well I'll have to use the bigger boat and then so he had to use the and he went up and up and up until it was the biggest spare boat that the ship had but it was still at the point of overcrowding which meant that he had to keep some some people who were loyal to Bly exactly loyalists they just had to stay with him so they're obviously discontent and it was so overladen they were basically you know dropped off in the middle of the ocean and from the edge of the boat to the water level was seven inches like oh wow really sitting really sinking really sitting low but i did eventually make it back he got to australia and then got like a dutch boat to sort of jakarta and then but then people were dying along the way but he did eventually uh, make it back so Christian now has the bounty and his crew of mutineers. They head out and find an island, the island of Tubuai. Okay. We're still in the Pacific here. Still in the Pacific. So they've left Tahiti, three weeks away from Tahiti. Christian's had enough, sent him on his way. Christian's now like, right, we're setting up shop. We've done mutiny. We're in the Pacific. We want to go find those women again. Yeah. <laughs> and Christian knew of this from his time on previous voyages. He'd been on, I think, some of Captain Cook's voyages oh. across the Pacific. But he also knew to set up shop because 
by all accounts, Christian has no plans of going home. <laughs> he knew that to set up shop, they would need women. Right. Oh, so he's planning on starting a settlement. And where had they recently been enjoying the company of women? Back to Tahiti. Right. <laughs> he goes back to Tahiti, and he concocts a story to the chiefs as to why they need women and livestock. And on the 16th of June... 1789 they leave Tahiti for Tubuai on board now with them are 30 Tahitian men and women and they set out to begin their settlement two months of trying to make a living on Tubuai proved fruitless which is you know given the whole trip was about fruit yeah oh I should also say that apparently immediately following the mutiny they got rid of all the fruit <laughs> straight there I know, throwing them after him as he's going and you can keep your fucking bread plants exactly <laughs> So they've been cast out at sea, two months trying to make a living on this island, discontent was growing, and Christian basically sensed this, and he realised that something had to be done or he was going to lose control, because yeah. he had good favour and all the rest. There were 24 of them, so he put it to a vote. Eight of the die-hard mutineers, they were with him to the end. Right. But the other 16 were either so-so mutineers, or there were, like I said, loyalists who he had had to keep a hold of, mm. and they voted to return to Tahiti. So fair play to him he accepted this he takes them back to tahiti drops off the 16 gets himself some more tahitians yeah <laughs> and sets off again so the group he's now within the bounty consists of nine mutineers and 20 polynesians okay 14 of whom are women and on the 22nd of september 1789 mutiny was in april they set sail in search of safe haven so they're now looking for a new island because the one that they landed on was a bit shit. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Now, he'd heard of Pitcairn Island, mm. which I realise I hadn't mentioned till now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he'd heard of this island called Pitcairn Island, and after months of searching, found it. And it turned out that its location was 216 miles east of where it was on naval maps. Oh, right. So he was like... <laughs> no one's finding us here oh smart and the crew decided to settle there on the 15th of january 1790 okay on arrival the ship was unloaded stripped of everything and immediately set ablaze Re oh so they were they were staying they were staying did they know was there anyone else living on pitcairn because because i'm just thinking like well what if they get there like strip the boat lads burn it and then two months later they have another T situation where they're like oh this island is not great either Pitcairn Island is 1.8 kilometers wide by 3.5 kilometers long it's tiny it's tiny it is in the middle of absolute nowhere its only existence on maps was 216 miles off of where it was he knew it was there because of some previous voyage he'd heard of it and all the rest so I don't know if he knew it was uninhabited but he knew there's an island in that direction. We're going to find it. And, mm. you know, maybe they did a lap of the island before burning the boat. But they very quickly decided, yeah, this is us. Uh, the island was, was uninhabited and virtually inaccessible. And so they settled down and decided to build their lives. Now, that wasn't, as with much of this story, without hiccup and extreme violence. And in September 1793... So a year later. Three years later. Oh, sorry. Three settled years. on 1790. But by 1793, matters descended to extreme violence with several mutineers killed, possibly including Christian. No one's sure if he died in that fight. The infighting continued into the next year. By 1794, the six Tahitian men had all been murdered. God. 
And so of the four remaining mutineers, two assumed leadership, while the other two were drunk. But life was pretty peaceful for another four years, until 1798, when one of the drunks committed suicide. A year later, the remaining drunk was unruly, and so the two surviving mutineered decided it was probably best to just kill him. (laughs) (laughs) To restore peace and keep things peaceful. Wow. Another year passed after the two surviving ones just decided we'll kill the other drunk before the last of the two remaining mutineers died, leaving only John Adams, who was now 31. When they set sail, he was 20. So wow. 11 years have gone by now. He's the last remaining mutineer and the last remaining man on the island. Oh. He assumed responsibility for teaching all of the kids that were there Using the ship's Bible, he taught them literacy and kept peace. And it wasn't until 1808 that the island and its population were rediscovered, 18 years since settling there. Wow. They went off the grid. (laughs) Now, I should say, just to check back in on Bly, like I said, it took him two or three years to make it home. He did try to bring them to court. He set out looking for them, but it was never him who found oh, them. Okay, I was going to say, because that would be a revenge arc. It was never him who found them. So let's fast forward to today. Okay. There is still a population on the island mm-hmm. of some 50 people, most of whom are all descended from these mutineers. Really? Yeah. But, and the whole reason for me telling you this, and I should just say that the island now, like I've seen YouTube videos, and you, they've got you know like their own little post office and their own little shop and they get these like massive drop-offs like you can visit Pitcairn it's bloody difficult you can do it and they there's like one shop which gets you know months upon months of spam delivered at months at once and they've got you know everyone gardens and they go around and quad bikes everyone knows that you know tiny it's like a you know like a village on an island exactly in the like the middle of nowhere but you can go up on a cliff there's like year-round whale you can just look down and there's whales (laughs) like it's kind of insane right but and the whole reason for me telling you this is to introduce you to the island's most famous living resident mr turpin mr turpin mr turpin (laughs) Mr. Turpin was one of five Galapagos tortoises which were dropped off on Pitcairn Island between 1937 and 1951. By the mid-1960s, only Mr. Turpin was left alive, and he survives to this day. Whoa! He's thought to be over 100 or so years old. He was relatively small when he arrived. Today, he is fully grown and cannot be so readily transported back to his main haunt on one side of the island, and he frequently wanders off limits. On occasion, he will find his way to the gardens, where despite a reputation for being a slow mover, he will destroy a vegetable plot in no time if left unchecked. If he is spotted anywhere near the gardens, the tractor <laughs> the tractor is called into service and he's coerced onto it to then make his journey back to the other side of the island he's been known to wander completely miles off where he is allowed to remain providing he doesn't venture back into the gardens where the island's food is grown okay so he's allowed he's allowed the roam of the island he's, except the garden except but that's where all the tasty food is exactly i didn't know giant tortoises could do this but it says that he can use his considerable weight to bring down a banana palm just to oh, eat the wow. flowers at the top 
like it, yeah, wow. Now, one of the reasons I love this is, remember, this is an island of 50 people, essentially all descended from the same lot. They've set up their own little community. They've had one giant tortoise <laughs> just roaming there with them for the last 60 years. Yeah. But being a little community, it does have its own prison. And there's a protection order on Mr. Turpin, which makes it an offence punishable by 60 days in prison should anyone kill, injure, capture, maim, cause harm, distress, or annoy the tortoise. (laughs) (laughs) Does um, not annoying the tortoise not include uh, putting on a tractor and driving it over to the other side of the island? (laughs) Let's just round it all off in the next few minutes with a few more uh, tortoises who've been named. Yes, let's. <laughs> and why are they so big? So very quickly, why they're so big? There is a phenomena called island gigantism. So this is when the size of a species changes on an island relative to its mainland counterparts, usually brought about by things like the lack of predation. And Galapagos is very famous for its massive tortoises, which have this. And one of the reasons they do get moved around or ended up on ships is because they can basically exist as massive living food stores because they can go for ages without more food. So it didn't say that's why. And, you know, 1937, I don't know if that was necessarily, but... Well, didn't Darwin was partial to a tortoise? He was partial to a tortoise, and, and they did. I'm pretty sure chuck them on the boats for exactly those reasons because they're basically uh, a store of meat that keeps for a long time. Exactly, um, but it's not just them. There was the moa in New Zealand. New Zealand, huge flightless bird. New Caledonian giant geckos are way bigger than sort of mainland gecko mm. counterparts. Komodo dragons are way bigger than other monitor lizards. Um, and it goes the other way. You get dwarfism as well. Is dwarf, so is dwarfism, gigantism is a response to there being no predators and, you know, and like flightlessness as well often in, in islands. So I guess dwarfism is a result of there being less resources. Because I know you get like not too long ago, but, you know, thousands of years ago there was like the sicilian pygmy elephant or whatever well you get yeah dwarf chameleons and everything as well i mean i guess for something like an elephant to go small it makes sense that it's fewer resources but i don't know why a chameleon would go tiny yeah maybe it's just trying to fit into niches if there's already something else there yeah i don't know yeah but that's you know on this history edition science tick back Mm -hmm. to the funny tortoises (laughs) (laughs) so These very charismatic giant tortoises pop up in a number of places. So, like Mr. Turpin, we're going to round off in no particular order. We'd check in on some celebrity Galapagos tortoises who've made their way across our uh, screens, lives, and presents. Starting with Lonesome George. Yeah, I heard of Lonesome George. Right, what do you know about Lonesome George? Lonesome George was the last of a species or subspecies... Uh, of tortoise i believe yeah um i can't remember because i think if i'm right in thinking the galapagos when we talk about the galapagos they are a, a group of islands and each one had their own subspecies um potentially species depends on they've been reevaluated of giant tortoise mm-hmm. lonesome george was the last of one of these subspecies and died not too long ago 2012 oh, okay a bit further back than i remember but yeah he he was yeah i remember him being around and them trying to find him a mate at one stage yep so 15 what i'm looking at says species of tortoises but okay. could be slightly out of date one for each of the islands george was from the pinter island that's where his species yeah. of tortoise was from and in 1971 scientists visited the island and he was the only giant tortoise found on the whole island 
The scientists even offered a reward of $10,000 to anyone who could find a female of the species, but unfortunately they were not successful. In 1972, a new exhibition was organised and George was taken to a breeding centre where he lived the rest of his life. Upon arrival, George remained alone. He was taken to two females of another species, which mm. was the most genetically similar, just to see if that would yeah. do anything. Um, but he never had much interest in them. Several attempts were made so that George could reproduce. He even tried to do artificial insemination in case one day a female is found, but nothing Mm. nothing was able to be done mm. um, he became emblematic he died in june 2012 and then went on exhibition at the new york museum of natural history but four years after his death george has returned to the island where he spent the last years of his life and is exhibited there as part of a galapagos interpretive path which i think is a much nicer place for him to be than new yeah. york he was a and it's one of my favorite but also one of the saddest words uh he was an endling Oh no! Which is the last of his species? Um, so the last of yeah, the last individual of any given species is known as an endling. That's a terrible word. <laughs> <laughs> but as we mentioned, just so people understand what was happening, you know, they were these amazing food sources. And it says that during the eighteen hundreds, ninety six boats took more than thirteen thousand tortoises in a period of thirty seven years. Oh my god. Like they were just the islands were stripped. Then rats, cats, dogs, pigs, donkeys, goats, all of that was brought yeah. in, ate the eggs, ate the plants and everything else. But that is Lonesome George. Mm. Slightly funnier one. <laughs> Pick us all back up. Have you heard about the celebrity tortoise breakup? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I'd like to introduce you to Bibby and Poldy, a celebrity couple of Galapagos tortoises. Born both around 1897, the pair met at a zoo in Switzerland around the turn of the 20th century, and their relationship began around the 1920s. They would lie together in the sun. They had a lovely time. Very romantic. Eating from either end of the lettuce and it, meeting exactly eating very slowly. While they were together, Bibby and Poldy had the longest known relationship of any two animals on Earth. <laughs> oh, wow. Right? At over, I think it's 115 years, wow. they reckon these two tortoises were, yeah, living together, oh loving God. each other and all the rest. Same enclosure for since the 20s. And then one day in 2012, Bibby decided she hated Poldy. <laughs> <laughs> She became irate, bit off a piece of his shell. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and on that day, Bibby became a single icon <laughs> for women trapped in relationships everywhere. <laughs> I wonder what happened. Zookeepers tried to repair the tortoises' relationships by talking to the animals. <laughs> but they also... Bibby refused to be in the same enclosure as her ex. She would scream at him. At one point... It was even suggested that she might have had some sort of breakdown, but they brought in anim uh, vets and it was confirmed that she was of sound mind and body. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever Bibby sees Poldy now, she hisses like a snake. Oh my God. Does not want to live or go near him. They can live to be over 200 years old. So the zoo has just had to, like it had no plans to build another exhibit, but they've had to literally separate the two tortoises. They brought in fake like male decoys to see if they could warm her back she's not having it she's just wow she's done i wonder what the um, she's what done hap what happened <laughs> my favorite line in all this was she didn't have a breakdown she had a breakthrough <laughs> <laughs> yes 
Strong, independent tortoise that don't need no man. Exactly. Exactly. But to finish off on our trilogy of celebrity Galapagos tortoises Aww. from the world over, I'd like to introduce you to Diego. Ooh. Hello, Diego. Now, Diego has had a very busy life. Jack, Diego's a sex god. <laughs> Diego. I was hoping, when you said Diego, that was the immediate impression that I got. He's a 100-year-old who has just been taken off his breeding facility because he has single-handedly saved his species by fathering over 800 babies. Get in, Diego. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Diego lives in Galapagos, does he? He's from Española, which is the island where his species is from in the Galapagos. He was moved to San Diego Zoo. And 40% of... Of the offspring. <laughs> of, of all of the breeding program's offspring, which raised over 2,000 tortoises and brought them all back to the island. Oh, Diego. Oh, Diego. <laughs> Diego needs to... I mean, I'm not saying they would not tried everything to understand Bibi the tortoise. But until they've introduced her to Diego. <laughs> Don't close that door, BB. Then, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, and I had heard of Diego before. Mm. And I'm going to be completely honest here. I've kind of lied to you. What about? He didn't single-handedly yeah. bring back his species. Because whilst he has fathered over 40%. Right. There is another. Not not the 60%. There's the 60%. Really? There's the 60%. But Diego got all of the headlines. Why? The other tortoise, same breeding program, yeah. for reasons I can't understand, is just called E5. E- Whoa. Who was another male tortoise on the same breeding program who fathered the other 60%. No way. But he didn't get the press... Because he did all his work, Jack, at night. But Diego was famed at the breeding facility. He went hammer and tongs during the day and would roar. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas the other tortoise, E5, got busy at night. Genetics reveal that Diego is only 40% of his species. The other 60%. It's, it's, it's E5. E5. I'm team E5. I'm team E5. Yeah. It's not a... Yeah. Yeah. It's he who shouts loudest. <laughs> well, you know, Diego may be a fraud here, but he could also be the tortoise for BB. Yeah. 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 Mate, and if not, E5. E5. E5's obviously... I, I The way in my head, I'm immediately like, Diego is uh, bold, confident, brash. <laughs> E5. I think E5 might be a better match for BB. Maybe. Maybe it's what she needs. Yeah. Yeah, E5. All right, we're back. With a segment that I'm calling Discretion is the Burda Part of Valor. (laughs) (laughs) This is our Burda check-in to let you all know that we are delighted to say that we are um, being sponsored this season by Burda, the bird-watching app. Mm-hmm. Burda is fantastic. I'm sure you've been listening to the last few episodes and you've heard all the different features it's got. For anyone new, it helps you get out there, start bird watching if you are new to it, but you can also support people with their bird watching if you are experienced. People can put in 
upload pictures of the birds they've seen, ask for help identifying them. So there's a fantastic community out there being built up to help you get outside, get bird watching, and explore nature much more. It's a really nice you said it's just a really nice community isn't it you uploaded a pigeon on there yeah and people were liking it people yeah <laughs> like imagine the 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 layout the functions of a so you know you can like you can comment you can this and yeah just putting up pictures of birds i've seen on my walks around london on my way to and from work leave a bad meeting check my phone five people have just said great job yeah it's so like yeah. in a world where social media is tearing us apart <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah birder is very very nice yes and like i said we have done a few of these yeah we're sort of on a little ornithological expedition around the world we are and this week we are going to south africa because we couldn't possibly we could not do birds around the world without visiting a goose yeah, yeah. had to be done and this is this is a goose isn't it just so this is the spur winged goose it mm. is the largest african waterfowl some clocking in at over five kilos and it is the world's largest quote-unquote goose now i'm just throwing a quote-unquote there and maybe you can correct me on this but it's not a the genus of goose oh. but it is named goose because it's actually closer to the shell ducks but i think of everything out there with goose in its name this is the biggest i see but if yeah. you're getting sciency there are some there's like the true geese but this is still you know colloquially known as a goose so, so this is a huge duck it's a huge duck <laughs> <laughs> a huge duck masquerading as a goose and this i should say you know we're in uncharted territory this is something i've not really any knowledge about the old spur winged goose which to find birds that jack has no knowledge about is that's a shallow pool <laughs> <laughs> but paddling in that pool <laughs> was the spur winged goose um so as the name suggests on its wings it has two carpal spurs which you know they're a spike. It's got spiked wings. Yeah. But that's not its only heavy metal. Yeah. This this is mad. This, yeah. And I had no idea about this, but it's the it's the little fun fact that's on the on the birder entry for the spur winged goose. That um they're often poisonous. Yeah. Due to their diet of blister beetles. Yeah. Mad. A poisonous goose. I know. I mean, we did. Our first episode was all about poison, and we did a section on poisonous birds. Yeah. And I never came across the spur-winged goose in that at all. The goose passed us by. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somehow, a show with goose in its name on its first entry, <laughs> doing a special on poisonous birds, missed the world's largest goose that happens to be poisonous. Like, if anything, that just shows that the facts on this app <laughs> are tip-top. Because <laughs> we didn't have a clue. <laughs> the um, the poison in the goose, uh, cantharidin, is held within the tissue of the uh, goose itself, which means that if you eat it, you can get poisoned. And 10 milligrams of cantharidin can kill a human. Mm. So it's not to be messed with. Yeah, and as Jack mentioned, we in the first episode mentioned, I think it was quails that were poisonous, but there are other, you've got the poison dart frogs, which eat ants and turn that into a poison. This whole process is called diet toxicity. So animals which can take poisons that are in their food and incorporate them into themselves. But as we said, uh, not only did we get the fact from the app, which is fantastic, but the app also lets you know where these are seen, if you want to get out, if you are listening in South Africa, if you do want to go out and see where you can check in on a spur goose. Recently at 
Oh, good. I just saw that name, (laughs) and I'm very glad the shoe's on the other foot, because I always feel like it's me mispronouncing things on this. Oh, good. Okay. So, yep, that place? (laughs) Sturkfontein. Sturkfontein Dam Viewpoint in South Africa. Um, So, like I said, get out there, get the app, go find some geese. It's time for that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death. Now, today's animal has been submitted on Instagram by Canel Montague, and it is the I.I. Let's get to know our foe. Hailing from the island of Madagascar, the I.I. is a species of lemur like no other. When you think of a lemur, you might think ring-tailed lemur, King Julian, the cute ones off the DreamWorks films, but the I.I. is not like that. It's the yin to the rest of the lemur's yang, the vader to their luke, the antimatter. It's the world's largest (laughs) nocturnal primate, typically around two feet long with a big bushy tail longer than their body. Weighing in at about two kilos and covered in thick bushy black fur with white tips that give them the appearance of almost going grey. They look like a big duster you might find in a haunted house come to life and their face gives off a similar bad taxidermy style vibe. They've got big old ears, big brown staring eyes, their mouth has rodent-like incisors that continually grow which help them to chew into wood in the tree canopy where they spend most of their time getting out their favoured grubs that they like to feed on. Now, the I.I. is most well known for the method that it finds these grubs. Their middle finger is specially adapted to be thinner, and it uses this to tap on the wood as it moves around the trees. They can tap up to eight times a second, and they listen to the echo that comes back from the wood with their big ears. They're using this echolocation to pinpoint hollow chambers inside the wood that any grubs might be living in, which they then chew open with those teeth. The fourth finger on an I.I.'s hand is then really long with a hooked nail, which they insert to pull the grub out of the hole that they've chewed, uh, which they then eat. And if all that wasn't weird enough, they also have a sixth digit, a little pseudo-thumb, that, uh, that they have to aid them in gripping as they move around the trees. And finally, the I.I. is steeped in Malagasy superstition and folklore, often believed to be the harbinger of evil and death due to its unusual appearance and nocturnal ways. So, Roddy Shaw, one of the most iconically bizarre animals on planet Earth, how many I.I. are too many I.I.? These are crazy. These are one of my favourite animals, I think. Yeah, yeah, similar. Every now and then one of these comes up and I'm just like, I don't want to fight this. I don't like them too much. Have you ever seen one? Only in captivity. Yeah. But I have seen them in, I think, Chester Zoo had them, uh, Bristol Zoo had them. Yeah, I've seen them a couple of times. Yeah. yeah. Always in the dark, you know, when you have to go, because they're nocturnal. Yeah. When you go to visit the zoo in the day, you have to go into the dark bit where they've switched the day and night cycle around and you just see this sort of thing moving around in the red light. I remember similarly seeing one in a zoo somewhere. I remember them being a lot bigger than mm. I thought they were. I think in seeing it on tv and attenborough type things growing up i had a kind of big bush baby yeah in my head yeah but like sort these of are two foot yeah they're like yeah. spaniel yeah. kind of size yeah and, they're, and they're, they're almost a bit not quite as extreme as the platypus but they've sort of got all these random bits like i didn't know oh, that, they're insane i didn't know that their teeth were like you know rodent teeth they just continually grow constantly yeah the the, the line i've heard about them mm. is because madagascar is sort of an experiment where the rules got turned off <laughs> yeah 
and all the health and safety, you know, the teacher just threw the risk assessment out the window and was like, let's just play around with the chemicals and see what happens here, <laughs> yeah. is that IIs fill the niche that woodpeckers fill everywhere else. Yeah. And the fact that everywhere else, I mean, woodpeckers are, ma- so this is, I find this completely insane about, well, life on earth in that everything, and maybe I've said this before, I don't know, but everything out there is just trying to like solve the problem of existence it's Mm. dna trying to figure out how to exist and wherever there is opportunity to exist something might take up that opportunity so you've got a forest full of trees and there's bugs growing under the bark and the the riddle there the question is if you can find a way to find the bugs under the bark and get them out you can make a living and so the rest of the planet looked at that and was like let's take a bird arm it with a sword on its face have a <laughs> shield its brain from impact and have it smash its way head first into wood yep. to get the grub and everywhere was like yeah that's cool we like that and then madagascar <laughs> looked at that same problem and thought okay <laughs> we're gonna go off script <laughs> yeah take us a lemur make it a squirrel <laughs> have it here real good, and then give it a hand that doesn't exist anywhere else on Earth. And Their hands are so mad. And have that find the bugs under the wood. <laughs> Through tapping. I know. Through tapping on the wood and listening to the echoes coming back off of the tap. It's like when you're tapping on the wood at like, or, or a wall. Yeah, looking to find if you can hang a TV. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's what the AI is doing. The whole yeah. time. Yeah, that's how it lives its life eight times a second. <laughs> yeah. If we ever got asked, like, what animal would be the best handyman, yeah. an AI would be fantastic. Yeah. That could tell you whether it was a stud wall, it could find the cables, it would tell you if there's plumbing under there, <laughs> everything before putting the drill in. Yeah. But we're not here to do that. No. But maybe maybe we are here to do that. The other thing I was thinking with this is I'm going to fight the II in Scotland. Right. Yep. And the only reason is because... <laughs> oh, I've just clicked. I've just clicked. It's because that is just going to make me laugh. <laughs> and everyone will be like, what are you fighting? An II. Yeah, what? An II. <laughs> Um, okay, I'm going to fight an I in Scotland. How many II am I going to fight in Scotland? I don't know. Where am I going to fight the II in Scotland? What has Scotland got a lot of? Because there's, there's, we do, like, they're weird, but they're not to be, <laughs> they're weird, but, I was going to say they're not to be feared, but they are to be feared. But mm. and, like, and the Malagasy people, a lot of them certainly do fear them. Well, exa- yeah, but I, almost, I didn't want to scratch that because that's a lot bigger than we've got this for. But yeah. like the teeth, for example, like you said, keep growing the whole time, right? Yeah. So that's definitely the offensive weapon. Also I'm, psychological. Could you imagine, imagine what it would feel like to, to just have that little finger tapping on you? Oh. That's something I've thought about before when I've seen them and just been like, imagine waking up one night what do you think it feels and just like? feeling it like on your head just oh, like oh no tapping away on your head and just wet and then the eyes because they're so they've got such big brown eyes and just like that staring at so you awake in your scottish lodge that you're staying for a romantic a romantic evening and there you have colored in some tapping. bits of my scotland trip which <laughs> i was on a different page because i was going to say i'm going to a castle Ooh. that has suits of armor around mm-hmm. because they can bite through wood. I need to 
Oh, I need to protect myself from those teeth. Like it. Okay. Scottish castles with suits of armor. Yeah, I'm going to be protected. No kills. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely zero kills. <laughs> and going back to that kind of like they'd be a good handyman, I think it would drive an I.I. round the bend because like castle walls are solid. Yeah, there's not stone. a single. They're not going to get anything back, right? It's just mm. a solid, 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 solid wall everywhere, and I think that's going to drive them mental. Okay, they're they're going to be like, where are the grubs? Where are the grubs? Where are the grubs? Where are the grubs? Where yeah. are the grubs? <laughs> and then I'm going to put myself in a hollow tin suit, <laughs> riddled with echoes. <laughs> but maybe it's too many echoes for them. Oh, maybe they're overstimulated because they're used to they're used to listening for the tiniest. Um, hollow chambers that grubs are sat in. Yes. You know, if they're suddenly tapping on a bit of metal, it's like, what? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's going to, they're going to get a lot of feedback, a lot of echo in this Scottish castle, dark castle. They're liking that. That's why they're there. Rafters. I'm going to say the word rafters. Yeah, they'll be up there. Yep. I'm in a suit of armor. The IIs come. So it's basically the question here, as it always comes down to, <laughs> is how many II does it take? to open a 15th century suit of armour. Science has been wondering this for far too long, and we're here to answer that question. Because there are going to be, like, the eye slits. So there are going to be gaps. Yeah. I think, And remember, they've got that fourth finger that is really long and has that hook on the end that exactly. they use for putting into the hole in the wood and bringing out the grubs. So that gonna, could go straight in. So I'm going to have to wear sunglasses under the, yes. under the visor so or, that... Because otherwise, yeah, they put the, the spindly finger through the eye slit of the armor straight, but sunglasses, so that's protected. But once they get the visor open, then they can take the glasses off and then they're putting a finger in my eye and then I'm dead. Yeah. So how do we have a weight class? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I didn't do that. I'll, I'll, I'll quickly get it for you. Well, Spaniel. So what's that, like six kilos probably? Uh, very I'm going to say an eye is 6.3 kilos. Weigh about two kilos. <laughs> <laughs> this has worked out really well. Okay, I'm doing the kind of me to II conversion, and that's 45 II, and that feels like a lot of II. That's a lot. That's a that lot of a lot, II. No matter how thick the armor that's is. That's so many eyes. Um, <laughs> 17. Hmm. I think 17 II. And you think 17 II would be able to get the get the helmet off or something? Well, that, Yeah, I, I don't know if they're getting it off. I don't know if it's a case of... Like the visor is, I'm, I've just got their teeth getting at the, the one of those big suits of arms with just a slit. And it's once they open that and get the sunglasses off. Because also I'm basically blind in this because it's a dark yeah. castle with a helmet and sunglasses. I'm just imagining like the first person perspective of hearing all the tapping on the armor <laughs> and only being able to see a very dark slit with just an eye occasionally flashing past or yeah. sticking its little finger in. No, I haven't made this pleasant for myself in any way. There's probably another one of these conversations where we do it at like an Asda shopping checkout <laughs> and I work that out for some reason. Rather than a haunted Scottish castle. <laughs> but instead we're going with nature's most superstitious animal in the scariest place on earth in the most restrictive environment possible where I'm, you know, sunglasses <laughs> under a suit of armour helmet, eye eye coming at me, 17. So I've got a question here. Lovely. From Hannah Collins. Hi, Hannah. Who asks, what would be the most disturbing animal to have as a therapy slash comfort animal on a plane? 
<laughs> for me or for the other passengers? <laughs> I think, let's just say, in general. In general. So I have seen, this is, did I see somebody take a peacock onto a plane once? I've seen that kind of headline. Yeah, someone yeah. like wheeling, like the tr- the trolley with all your suitcases on, wheeling it into an airport, and then they're just being a giant peacock, and they're being like, this is my therapy peacock. Yeah, and to just, to, to be crystal clear here, America. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. No one is boarding at Birmingham International. <laughs> With a peacock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we should say, I'm sure there are some, you know, there are some cases where therapy animals are very much necessary and they are generally well-behaved dogs and things like yes. that. Um, yeah. You know, a giant yeah. screaming peacock yeah. doesn't give off therapy animal vibes. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay. I think, just going off the back of what you said, I actually think a lot of birds... Yeah. No, most of them. For like cockatoo, they oh my scream. God. The thought of being on a plane with someone with a cockatoo going off yeah. is Christ. That goes through you. Yeah, you know, when they start screeching. <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't worst. It was like most uncomfortable, it's, wasn't it? it yeah, was, it was. How was most the, disturbing? Most disturbing. So we watched Jack and I watched David Attenborough's new series Wild Isles. Uh, last night it was the episode on freshwater for anyone else who's been watching unsure exactly when this <laughs> will go in but anyway and there was a sequence where a leech <laughs> ate a baby toad and it was b- i need a therapy animal <laughs> having seen that sequence it was one of the most <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just <laughs> grotesque um what's the guy uh not hg wells um Lovecraft, Lovecraftian sort of horrors of the deep. <laughs> it's just like absorbing these little toads. Yeah, these it? tiny little like deod toadlets just trying to hop away to safety, and this yeah mm. sentient ooze yeah. sort of pursuing them and just all consuming them. I think if I went on and someone was sort of covered in therapy leeches, <laughs> I'd oh my god, Christ. Having said all that, yeah. they are actually medically pretty amazing things in mm-hmm. what they can do. But psychological counselling is not in their arsenal. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. Therapy leech, that's out. Yeah. I think it's like when you think of a therapy animal, you think of something that's comforting, don't you? You think of something that, you know, there's something. They're quite tactile. It's the softness. It's the... It's the warmth. It's that sort of thing, you it's know. It's the opposite of a leech. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's <laughs> literally leeching off you. Whereas you want the therapy animal to be something you can lean on, you can support you, something that can build you up. The thought, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is my therapy tape work. I, I, was, I think the invertebrates don't have much going for them. Not today. No. I, yeah. This is my therapy jar of locusts. Yeah, exactly. Well, also, I think with this one, you know, sometimes we, it's, you know, what do you want to take to a wedding? And we scale it up, scale it down. What do you want to do this with? I think therapy animal is staying the same size. Yeah. So, yeah, a therapy. Yeah, but I guess, yeah, sorry, I'm I'm flip-flopping in my head here because we're looking for the worst. Yeah. But the worst, but like an ant would be terrible, but it'd be terrible just because you'd lose it. Yeah. A sailfish. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Therapy haddock. <laughs> yeah. Just something that, like, 
you're constantly having to keep its gills wet so it can breathe. Yeah. That's that's stressful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it objectively needs more from you <laughs> yeah. than it's giving back. Yeah. Yeah, therapy. Because selfish, they're like four metres long, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Rocking up to sort of airport security with that. Also, that's the point. Not allowed any sharp items on a plane. Oh, yeah. So selfish. You get turned even, back. It's not even making it through. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to lance someone on <laughs> at 33,000 feet. There's going to be an air hostess with a selfish <laughs> through her eye. <laughs> okay, we've had a quick check here. In at number one, weirdest emotional support animals, Dexter the emotional support peacock. <laughs> and I don't want to say that I was right. Yeah. But that was in um, Newark International Airport, American flight to LA. So, yeah. Daniel, the emotional support duck. Okay. Again, I don't want to say I was right. Milwaukee, (laughs) domestic internal American flight. (laughs) Then we've got Fred, the miniature service horse. Don't want to say I was right. (laughs) American Airlines, Michigan to Dallas. (laughs) Emotional support pig <laughs> doesn't actually say where that one was. Okay, we'll let you off, America. Yeah. Well, we're coming back in with Gizmo the emotional support marmoset. <laughs> Gizmo the emotional support marmoset. Las Vegas. <laughs> Which I've got to say is very Las Vegas. That's Ohio to Las Vegas. Yeah. The last one, a turkey was spotted in airport security, but... Nobody knows how the, it goes. It uh, <laughs> there's no, there's nothing beyond that. There's just that's like that. It's almost if the person who wrote that article had to fill a certain word count yeah. and was just like, uh, also a turkey was spotted yeah. in airport security. <laughs> um, I would say though, apart from those, I can see the logic in all but Dexter, the emotional support peacock. You know, the duck, ducks. Yeah. Cute, yeah. People warm to them. The yeah. rest, horse, pig, marmoset. Yeah. I can see those. Dexter yeah. is on his own. As yeah. so, I think this is one where uh, I was going to say life has imitated art. It's not that, but it's, you know, like the real world has already already done it for us. Yeah, it's- we we would have said. Imagine how ridiculous it would be taking a peacock on a plane, <laughs> and someone's already done it. Yeah, yeah. With a strong second place given to leeches. <laughs> Coming to an American domestic flight near you (laughs) soon. Hello, listener. It's just me popping up, as I always do, at the end of the show to tell you all the stuff that you already know. Remember to check out our friends over at Birder by downloading their free app and getting your bird on. If you do feel so generous, then please do drop us a donation over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash howmanygeese. But mainly, this is the part where I tell you that we're both very grateful for you listening, your support, and for sharing this podcast. Thank you all very much for listening, and we'll see you next Tuesday.